Welcome to GeoThoughts Talks. I'm Drew Bush. In GeoThoughts Talks, we bring you lectures from our team, partners, and collaborators on topics important to the GeoThink audience. GeoThink's Summer Institute may have concluded over a month ago, but for those of you who missed it, we bring you three talks to remember. This third talk, entitled Discussion on the Future of Crowdsourcing in the Public Sector, features Darren Brabham and Robert Goodspeed as they lead a discussion on where the future of crowdsourcing lies in the public sector. In particular, Goodspeed begins with an opening statement on how crowdsourcing can be used to help government agencies gain legitimacy by actually seeking input which can guide their actions. Brabham then cha challenges students to consider that crowdsourcing applications do fail and, even when they succeed, can challenge whole professions that exist to collect the same data by other means. Run as part of GeoThink's five-year Canadian Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Partnership Grant, the Summer Institute aimed to provide undergraduate and graduate students from partners with knowledge and training in theoretical and practical aspects of crowdsourcing. Each day of the Institute alternated morning lectures, panel discussions, and in-depth case studies on topics in crowdsourcing with afternoon work sessions where professors worked with student groups one-on-one -on, -one on their proposal to meet a challenge posed by the City of Ottawa. See more on our website on the Summer Institute. Moving further, further back. Yeah. All right. So we've intended this session to be a little bit of a discussion. So you know, if you're um, doing a little shopping or sketching up your correspondence, you know, hopefully you can uh, uh, tune in. And so um, I, I have kind of a brief opening statement um, that I've, I've been ruminating on the, the subject of this panel for a few days or since we started planning this. And uh, Darren, I'm sure, will have some. And it's super gauzy and inspiring, and then it's sort of like, okay, what does that mean? So I think 
concretely, there's two ways to address this problem. And like, we're getting to crowdsource this question. Um, the first is um, a scholar named Moore who wrote a book about creating public value. Anybody familiar with this? And so um, he, he's the one um, of looking at public um, officials and saying, look, they have a lot of leeway, but um, they often um, know which things are going to be more valuable or not to the public. And we should, in many cases, it's okay that they like take action without having a referendum or going back to their elected official. And he created a, a laboratory theory about this. It's been applied by the um, uh, Center for Technology and Government at SUNY Albany to IT specifically. So as a PhD student, you could use this framework to evaluate the value of open data or whatever IT innovation you want to hear concerned with. So that's kind of one avenue. And um, the other one is, is one that uh, I think planning is really engaged in, which is there are certain problems that are like too wicked. They kind of, the government alone doesn't have the capacity. And so we need to do a collaborative planning or a collaborative policy making process. So by its nature, um, the kind of uh, characterizing and addressing the problem transcends the public sector. So that's the kind of argument about collaborative planning. And so, so anyway, crowdsourcing, I think, clearly has a huge potential for either of those. So Darren and I had a little back and forth. And you know the collaborative planning stuff, like of course, uh, it could be a tool that's deployed in part of a broader negotiation or discussion. The, the, the former one, you know, maybe the, the public official says, well, there's a, a really big problem. I know there's public value to solve the problem. I'm going to crowdsource the solution. Maybe it's a bus stop. Maybe it's a million other things. So then the, we raise the question of why are there so few examples of public sector crowdsourcing if it's so obviously effective for? You know, both of these kind of modes of public action, which I just theoretically kind of supported as being legitimate. And so I think you know, that relates to the kind of nature of government, and that relates to what I think we, um, as scholars and practitioners, are going to need to do. So the first is, uh, I was talking to Professor Siever, she was observing that, that they're learning, and you're, you're learning as a researcher, that open uh, data and uh, technology is always separate from like substantive people, and government's just this massive silos and one person retires and the whole relationship falls apart. So, you know, um, one is basically government needs, in order to um, use crowdsourcing, which is a new method which requires design, requires design thinking, needs to become more of a learning organization. And governments will need to become more dynamic and more able to change and test new things. And so that requires like kind of cultural institutional change in government. So I think that's kind of one thing. and. Uh, and the other kind of big issue out there is the knowledge and skills required for crowdsourcing, I think are, um, so there's this tension between these new practices and established professions at several layers. Like one is do they actually have like the skills and knowledge to do it? And that's why your teams are cross-functional, you have lawyers and technical people. That's why I think I've already seen the value of, of having that diversity on your team. And, uh, I, I, I've numbered too many things, I forgot what this is. <laughs> anyway, so, but you get, you get the idea. So, um, and so, oh, and at, at another level, you know, professionals have proprietary approaches to like epistemology and other aspects of this, and like what they're, they're professional, you know, within kind of the professional intellectual world, each one has its own slice about what is valid knowledge and, uh, uh, you know, what is legitimate action, et cetera. And so try talking to a public health person who's been through a ton of epidemiology about non-random surveys and rating and weighting, and good luck with that. So I think 
Uh, I, I pose the challenge to you. One, it need, we need skills and knowledge that aren't in government. Uh, here we go. Three things. One, skills and knowledge that aren't in government. Two, um, we, have, we have to deal with the professional barriers to adoption. And three, the institution as a whole is not a dynamic learning organization in the same way as the private sector, and therefore uh, doesn't know about design thinking and isn't really interested in learning. So um, these are your modest barriers. But I'm incredibly excited about this program and you as individuals because you know things can change and they will change. But those would be the three areas that I think we, we really need to focus on uh, to kind of realize the, the public value to use Warren's word or to supercharge collaborative planning if you're in my class. So um, thank you for bearing with my, my little discussion. Hopefully it sparks some further debate and I'll uh, I'll uh, keep the rest of my talk to myself here for a few minutes. Uh, Eric. Yeah, so I think the uh, the touching on the institutional barriers and, and just the professional kind of um, I don't know, the it's a barrier, right? The professional kind of hurdle that has to be crossed. So I put a lot of stock in that. I think is the reason why we haven't seen many. Although before I get into that I want to say we probably have seen a lot of these, but all the failures disappear. So we don't have a ton of really failed cases that are awesomely failures that we study and we know really well. A lot of the stuff you see in literature is um, these celebratory, you know, utopian, boy, this is an amazing, this next stop design type rhetoric um, about how amazing it was. That was a great student, it was nice. Um, but I think the reason is we, all the, there have been bad failures that have gone away, right? And we haven't been able to really analyze why they failed specifically. And so the best we can do in some cases is just to look at what succeeded and try to determine what they're doing right in a common way. So I, to start with, I think there are more cases that have happened, although it hasn't been as big as I think it could. Um, and one of the reasons it hasn't grown as much, I think, is because um, public administrators, people who run government, right, who we've elected or have been hired by city councils or whoever to do this kind of work, um, they're people with jobs, and they've worked for a long time to get these jobs. They have you know, advanced schooling. And it's awfully threatening sometimes to see um, crowdsourcing activities come along and do their work. Right? If you were trained as a, a professional public facilitator, right? you're, you're trained to go in and run town hall meetings or workshops and get you know, dialogue going. That's still a valuable tool. And I would still advocate that crowdsourcing needs to be a complementary method with these traditional methods for digital divide reasons, but also because the quality of the work is different, the quality of the output. But, um, when you see something come along that says, we're just going to build a discussion board, and we're going to give people ways to vote and give star ratings and the best ideas will emerge, and that's what will determine the next view of our city park, will be what people just say online. Can't you imagine that that would be awfully threatening? And as someone who prof was professionally trained, might have master's degrees in how to run a public meeting, um, I would immediately look for ways to discredit that and look at, um, look at flaming on in these discussion boards and say, well, that's, that wouldn't happen in my workshop, so that's why we shouldn't be doing this. Or raise issues of privacy or security or whatever it might be. Um, or point out that people are anonymous. We don't know who they are. Um, I think when people, it's easy to point to reasons why we shouldn't be doing something. When you're in an established um, position of power, when you've had a, a profession that you've built, um, and I think this, this gets to a maybe more controversial point in that I, I see professionalism and the professions as really just ways to hold on to power. So I teach public relations, um, which that's the majority of what I teach, which is kind of odd. Um, but I teach public relations, and they have this APR degree, this accredited and PR 
designation. You pay a lot of money, and one of the PR institutes will give you this accreditation. You're an expert in PR. Do you need an APR degree to do public relations? Absolutely not. Do you even need a, a degree in anything? No. And it doesn't need to be in PR. But there's this attempt by this profession to try to legitimize who they think are the best PR people who follow some sort of standard ethics or whatever, know how to write, know what the law is, and they say that these are PR people. It's all bull, right? It's absolutely garbage, and I think the read, no offense to anyone with an APR, um, but, and it's not that you don't learn anything, but I don't think you need it to do the work. Um, but all these institutions grow to protect themselves and to legitimize what they're doing. And anytime you have an association of, or you have a designation or a credential, or someone who gets a degree in something, um, you are now part of this kind of professional group. Um, and so, you know, I think when anytime there's, there's someone that comes along and threatens that, who can do the work without the training or without the equipment, um, when a stock photographer, you know, amateur photographer goes and takes photos and dismantles the stock photography profession through iStock Photo, that's obviously threatening to someone who has spent their life as an MFA in photography, et cetera. And so I think we see kind of um, these major, major threats. And so if someone can come along and just kind of throw a platform online and say, this will run discussion, or this will get your input, or this can design a bus stop, or whatever it might be, and all we need you to do is just kind of push the buttons to start it and stop it, I think is really, really profoundly scary. Um, and I think a lot of resistance has come from that. It is also because of technical um, expertise, lack of technical expertise. Do you need a lot of technical expertise to run a crowdsourcing activity today? Even something that's producing designs and bus stops and that kind of thing? Absolutely not. You don't. You can do a public engagement activity on Facebook, on a wiki, freely available stuff. You can Twitter, whatever. Um, but I think you flash back to 2008, 9, 10, when this kind of stuff was starting to become buzzy and new. And yes, it was a little more complicated. You had to build a website. You had to do this sort of thing. But now we have empty containers that can be posted online and you can run any sort of contest or you can run any sort of engagement activity. So the barriers have gone down, but I think the initial fear is still there. Uh, we don't have the expertise to do this. I don't think people realize how easy it is. But as these free tools have come along, and now there are all sorts of open source options, you can do these sorts of things with wikis, whatever it might be, we've also seen the rise of these professional consultants who come in with their tools and their techniques on how to do crowdsourcing. And they're taking the place of that. And so instead of um, I think public administrators, planners looking to um, these activities to reach citizens, there's now this layer that they bring in where they've that, that come in to consult them on how to do that. And it's a much more safer uh, discussion, I think, for them than to just open up to the Wild West. They get to work with someone who's done it and who offers a tool set to do it. Um, so I, I guess I, I kind of take a longer view on why this hasn't grown as much as it has um, and how I think it maybe it has grown. Um, but definitely there are, I, I would put, I don't know, the burden on the institutional barriers more than these bigger conceptual issues. I don't honestly think that people are that concerned about privacy or security or any of these sorts of issues or ethics. I think these are cop-outs to explain why they shouldn't be doing something most of the time. Um, honestly, I think that's, that's kind of my stance. Yeah. Just a brief note. Um, my view, I think, uh, Professional, I, I think it's a little more complicated than that. I, I think uh, there's a lot of value. It's uh, professional, both systems of communities of practice, systems of values, uh, assembled knowledge and skills. To the extent that we need professionalization in society, we're going to need um, so that their existence alone isn't, it, um, 
is it a problem with maybe the rigidity or how they're structured or their openness to learning and change is a problem? But it's a whole other, <laughs> we could go there if we want, but it's a whole other uh, debate, but maybe, um, you know, we're partly on teaching and professional for version. But, yeah. but, but also um, always arguing in terms of push beyond it. So, uh, yeah. uh, okay. Um, there was a, an amazing article written by Paul Ford last week called What is Code? So, yeah, I don't know if you read it, but it, it starts off with a scenario that there's some mid-level manager sitting there and they've got a new IT guy and the new IT guy walks in and he's wearing skinny jeans and he's got a beard and he's like, and it starts talking a language that this mid-level manager has so just got absolutely no idea about. Um, and and but really, the, the key thing is exactly what you're saying, that it is that not just that there's a fundamental fear, um, you know, within sort of the institutions of power uh, around how you deploy things like IT, um, but also there's a sort of fundamental change taking place in the programming languages. You know, people are now, you know, no longer C++, but we're talking about sort of Ruby, GeoJS, and all these things which, you know, which that middle-level manager has absolutely no connection with at all. Um, but it's funny because it maps on really nicely that, that essentially what's taking place now is a massive cultural shift in the way that we do computing. Um, and often within the public sector, the types of decisions being made around what you're prepared to deploy and not deploy um, is made by people that essentially learn their trade in a completely different environment. And municipal governance or you know, government period is very risk averse. So in fact, you know, how well adapted given this sort of decision-making processes is it to adapt to these new types of tools as well? Yeah. Design thinking. Uh, so the, the a lot of the examples of the bad apps are a person with the technical skills making judgments about about privacy, about how it should work. And design thinking is a lot about dissolving the boundaries between the technical skills and other people, and in doing so, creating more usable tools. So so um, well that you know the whole issue of um, should we all learn how to code kind of falsely di diagnoses. So it's, it's another response to the problem of only the coder having too much power. My response is, like, I work on teams with just one coder, one scientist, and me, somebody else, and we all collaborate. And I don't, I don't need to learn how to code, and he doesn't need to learn what I, what I need to know. We need those different skills. So, but in a different setting, we call for different responses. Yes?
so we have all these increasingly deep areas of expertise that are expected, and so you get more and more people that are like, okay, this person is the expert in that, and we know to go to them to get this kind of information or their kind of input, which is kind of what you've done with our interdisciplinary teams with this project. Right, so it's the same thing that you were saying, but when that person goes, because of the depth of knowledge, the, tr the transfer of information will be more difficult. So you may not actually be able to transfer everything from that siloed person's information base because of the specific expertise that they bring. So that information learning, you know, organizational learning, might not be just be a cultural shift, but it might be a shift in the way that we view organizational teams within the, the broader set. And then, on the other hand, um, Darren, I hear you saying that more and more different kinds of experts can be developed kind of if they have the gumption to do so. So if you, if you really want to do PR, you don't necessarily need all these accreditation things and these barriers to entry, which is funny because they're being sort of increased in academia. Yeah, Which, Definitely. you know, tenure packet submission, I'm sure you're aware of that. Can't wait to get that point, so I'm sure you'll let me know how yeah. it's increased at that point, but I'm there. But um, so the, the accessibility of tools and the accessibility of certain kinds of expertise has also changed. But I don't think that it's new with crowdsourcing because that's technologically deterministic. So I think that we've often had these kinds of shifts in tools that we do have, um, but it's, it's always changed. So we have, you know, we suddenly have heart surgery and that shifts medicine. We suddenly have, you know, the tools to do heart surgery. We suddenly have TV come in and that shifts so we have these different technological shifts that we have, and maybe crowdsourcing is, is a platform shift. You know, we have the internet technology, but this is a new tool that we can use to change things. And I don't think it's necessarily going to rock the boat to the, to the extent that we see discipline boundaries disappear, or we see professional criteria end. I think they just shift in terms of academia getting more and more difficult to join as a professional group. Maybe if then it disappears. Because, I mean, it won't eventually completely disappear, but yeah. maybe it becomes just this sacrosanct group of individuals because nobody else can get it. Yeah, yeah, so I guess I should I should soften or clarify or explain on this <coughs> thing. I don't think we should, for instance, get rid of professional you know, facilitators or anything, but I think their, their jobs need to evolve, right? So being a professional facilitator um, who runs workshops and that kind of thing, traditional methods, Maybe it's more than just how to do that. Now it's, I also need to really how to know how to build and sustain an online community, which is a whole different set of skills, right? It involves immersing yourself in, in the community and so on. So maybe it's about kind of just enlarging and, you know, in the same way that a business degree in the 70s may not have required you to use a computer, but now it does, right? Um, so maybe that's kind of the, the evolution of, of what needs to happen. It's kind of just look at what skills are required to run a crowdsourcing application and, and put those two together existing. Uh, you're gonna let us have like a couple more questions, all right? Anyway, she's trying. Yeah. Uh, I just want to respond. I think uh, your your comment uh, made me realize that so um, uh, professions also involve demarcating who can do what. It's not only about your values, knowledge, and skills. And uh, Nathan Glazier classically wrote this thing: the major professions are uh, you know, law, law, medicine, and I think maybe engineering. Forgotten. The minor professions are everybody else, <laughs> and so the you know our ability to demarcate who can do and who can't has always been fuzzier, and, and um, but the professions are always uh, forcing to clarify that. And I think your comment made me realize the extent to which 
that aspect of professionalism conflicts with the, the classic principles of knowledge management um, and, and, and so the knowledge management literature is all about cross-functional teams so that it's one, you know, everybody can do everybody else's jobs to within certain limits. And so, um, and uh, the importance of um, externalizing and documenting or, or knowledge at the organizational level, not within uh, within professional communities. So those things are kind of but I think uh, we could come up with some kind of synthesis. You know, it, it would it would involve a reformulation of what it means to be a professional. That uh, it's not about being jealously guarding the activities, but it's about uh, being, um, uh, you know, having a certain set of skills, knowledge, a certain worldview or perspective, etc., that you can bring to the problem. So, but it's what is the major major well, the major professions are about lives, right? I mean, medicine, law, sending people to jail, bridging, building bridges, engineers, right? It's about protecting lives. Public relations doesn't do it as much of that, I would say, or public engagement. Start, start on the left, and then if you remain to the last, last question, then... I guess I'll pull back in the scale. So I guess going back to the original statement about the adoption of crowd participatory projects in institutions. Like, for me, I think the big distinction is when we're talking about, we're talking about local initiatives, municipality, neighborhood, community leaders, things like that, versus a federal level. So back to the aspect of going to the larger federal level. The institution itself is set up historically like Alexander Hamilton Electoral College, the public participation in the crowd itself is a bad thing for the operation of government, and you should discourage it. And so maybe back to what Darren was saying, the distribution of power and the role that crowd initiatives have is actually very limited in capacity. So what is a crowdsourced uh, project on a government level or a federal level make it absolutely going to consume our agendas? instead of making some major policy changes. So I think, historically, the institutional process at one level of government is set up to limit the capacity and role of crowdsource or public participation in general, versus a local one where it's designing a new bus stop or something to that effect, gives somebody the kind of fleeting sense of control of their life and surroundings. So I think the scale and like place do have a lot to do with the aspect of crowdsourcing. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I'll add to that that we don't see a ton of cases that we hear about anyway at the state or provincial level or that kind of level. We see a lot of federal cases, and a lot of the biggest successes in policymaking too have been like Iceland, New Zealand, really small population countries, small geographic countries too. Um, or you see them at the really tiny level, you know, small transit line or one, you know, some sort of neighborhood scale. So I think that you're hitting on something. There's a reason we don't see a lot of state of Kansas doing crowdsourcing. Topeka, or I mean, they can group thing, but it's not collective action or like yeah. some sort of crowd-based movement. Yeah, well, yeah, and, you know, the, the federal ones tend to be like up here, where it's agencies within their purview, um, uh, mapping creators on the move, crowdsourcing, and um, at, the, at the local level, But I, yeah, but I, but I guess my only comment was we should think carefully also about that 
all these different types of crowdsourcing we've been talking about, like a big matrix, levels of government, you know, and how they filter through. And that's what I was trying to kind of map up in my mind. So it's some good at some levels, more or less readily than others. So, but, but maybe the, the missing middle might, might be explained by local government is pretty conservative, but there's like a million of them, so at least a handful will try things. And uh, the federal government has kind of the capacity and size to at least in certain pockets, be innovative, and you know the president um, sort of very pushed and the president in the U.S. kind of pushed these ideas to a certain extent. Federal agencies, although I uh, recall I forget which article that um, they concluded only certain agencies are really participating in data.gov, and the rest are just kind of pretending. So, but but yeah, that would be my kind of realistic. getting degrees. That means you are becoming experts. At the same time, you are in a world that disdains expertise. And you often probably think, that professor up there, what does he know? What does she know? I know as much. I have the tools to make the case. And in this summer institute, you're studying crowdsourcing, which can further diminish the need for your buy into the um, rhetoric about how easy these tools are, and we should acknowledge that we are now experts at a new set of tools, creating an institute. Maybe, Crowdsourcing but professionals. Following on Kristen's point, maybe it's the privileging of certain expertises over others. I mean, yeah. certainly we have seen the rise of Silicon Valley tech types, and uh, that it's like, uh, with things like Code for America, what do you need all these development people? All you need is a technologist to go into a war-torn country and fix stuff. I, and that's the code for America thing. I mean, I think that's probably one of the limited examples on that federal, the entire United States type of example where they do try to bring information to people mostly. So like access to policy information or bills on that house floor. Like that, that I think code for America has done really well, but I don't know that that has, has there been any like change that has come from Code for America that they think like plant the flag and take credit for? You know, that for a lot of government efficiency, they do take credit for. So efficiency, like the speeding up processes. Mm -hmm. And developing countries as well. But the, I have a blog post, the original title was Why Code for America is Scaling. So anyway, that they're, they're, the empirical ch challenges they face have only confirmed all the things that we're discussing and learning about. And, and um, it's, it's been uh, fun to watch because it's the flawed ideology of the Bay Area hitting the real world of government and, and not knowing how to deal with it. And uh, so, and, and anyway, that's my, my take on it. Uh, 
last comment in the corner, and then we'll break the conference. I would say it's maybe we're moving away from um, expertise of content or tools or techniques and like processual kind of process expertise. Thinking how pieces go together and synthesis and that kind of thing I think makes a lot more sense. It's kind of why I've always liked being in a communication studies discipline because I think it's the study of process. It's the study of inter betweenness between people talking or whatever it might be. So um, I think that's why some people are in crisis when they do photography opposed to think about stock photography as a thing um, that industry has suffered that way. Uh, or public relations, not about writing press releases, it's about thinking about how to pitch stories, right, and how to get coverage. So I think we've seen this in a lot of places. Geography is not about maps. It's not, it's not like knowing the capitals of countries. It's about more than that, right? So um, crowdsourcing, I think, is just you know, follows that same logic. It's all this professions it, quote, disrupts. And on that note, we'll see if the watermelon is going to crack next year. Yes. Before we go here, I just have a quick uh, thing to say. I just want to thank our guest speakers for coming all this way and coming and uh, you know, sharing your expertise with students and faculty. And I'm just really appreciative of that. And so, if you have to use it, you have to give you a small beer mug to uh, you know, show your loyalty amongst all your colleagues. So, so uh, thanks a lot. Give you a round of GeoThoughts are brought to you by geothink.ca and generous funding from Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council.